This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Monday. We're back for a Neonatology Review Podcast. How are you, Daphna? Listen, I love the Review Podcast. And, um, you know, I like taking care of babies with HIE. So this is this is a big week for me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, you always say that. And I kind of agree. It's fun. But I usually arrive at the recordings of these podcasts completely drained. Uh, because yeah, of how it takes much, a like, lot out of us, right? Yeah. It, it feels like you're studying for the boards and it feels like you're in the, the two weeks before the boards and you're trying to like cram, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the literature really like uh, jerks you around back and forth. It's like, oh, and there's another paper that says the opposite of that. What about this? And what about that? It's just, uh, it's a lot. Yeah. Neonatologists publish way too much for the amount of evidence, for the amount of hardcore evidence we have, there's way too many papers. <laughs> You would think yeah. that with this volume of literature, we would be kind of practicing on solid foundations. And yet, <laughs> it's, it's a bit There's of a, a lot of hand-waving. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's quicksand out there. Um, so, <laughs> as usual, we picked a topic that we thought was going to be narrow enough to give us... And it wasn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we could have done a week on the history, a week on you know, management, we're not even mm-hmm. talking about management, really. We're just talking about the pathophysiology. Right. <laughs> and we're talking about, um, in case you haven't gathered from the title, we're talking about therapeutic hypothermia for hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And since this is Monday, this is my time to walk you through the history. Are you ready? It's, a, it's, a, it's a marathon today, not a, not, a, not a little short jaunt. Oh, no. So usually the problem with the history is that I know where I'm supposed to end, right? I'm supposed to get to like the, the years 2000-something. And you, weren't on sure, how, you weren't sure where it was going to start. <laughs> and so depending on where I start, I realize how much work is going to be there for me. Um, and the quote that we're starting with is from 1697. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, and, and the reason we're starting so far back is because I, I, as I was doing some, some digging, um, Really, this quote from the 17th century may be like the first description of how hypothermia was used for the management of neonatal hypoxemia. And this is reported by Sir John Floyer, who was a British physician at the time. And he talks about um, this person, and I quote, Sarah Parks gave stillbirth to a baby boy. A young doctor assisting the Parks regular physician begged for the opportunity to experiment with an idea he had to rouse the lifeless infant. A tub of ice was ordered and the young doctor plunged the baby into it. Out came the screaming little Parks and he was named Gordon after the doctor who prodded him to life. I like have chills actually a little bit. No pun intended, but (laughs) chills, but... uh, um... Anyways, yeah, this is. You wonder maybe if they had used PPV, it would have been just as effective. <laughs> That's. True. But here we are. Here we are, and and this this i this this idea of using hypothermia um, has been something that lingered 
in the scientific community. And the famous French scientist Claude Bernard, who uh, studied actually the effect of hypothermia and correctly observed that asphyxiated kittens continue to gasp for longer intervals when cooled. So if you go through the scientific literature, there are tons of these little references from mm -hmm. either physicians or physiologists or general scientists that talk about these experiments that they, they were doing on animals about how cooling babies and cooling uh, animals really uh, improved life. Even even to the to the ancient Greece where I was reading about hip, um, Hippocrates who observed that babies who were left outdoors after birth survived longer. They had this this idea of exposure, right? So if you if you had a baby and you didn't want the baby, you usually left it outside. Um, and you were hoping that either mm -hmm. some animal was going to take care of it or that another parent was going to mm -hmm. pick up the baby. But that was an observation. So, so that's running through the scientific literature. But it really wouldn't be until like the early 50s, uh, the early 1950s, I'm sorry, that the first really um, animal study would be conducted on the idea of using hypothermia for neonatal encephalopathy. And so what's interesting is that when you read these papers, right, my question always is who has this epiphany of saying, hey, maybe we should do this, right? And where does that come from? So the authors, um, the author of the of the first really the first paper on this subject is Dr. James Miller, who um, who lived in Atlanta for a while and then was mostly known for his work when he was at Tulane in, in Louisiana. And he quotes in this paper the Vent Hoff principle, uh, named after Jacobus Henry Vent Hoff, who was a Dutch chemist, who outlined the following rule, which states that the rates of chemical reactions increases two times or more for each 10 degrees Celsius rise mm. in temperature. And so based on this principle, James Miller conducted a series of experiments on guinea pigs where he basically concluded, and I quote, it appears that the effect of reduction of colonic temperature on one-day-old guinea pig subjected to anoxic anoxia is to prolong life at about the same rate as might be expected from the Venthoff rule. Mm. And, and so this is really where it all begins. Um, this, this, the, these studies were published and were performed in the, in the, in the 1950s. And in the early 1960s came the first clinical report of hypothermia for the management of neonatal hypoxia. Um, interestingly enough, right? It's, if you want to understand the inception of hypothermia, you have to shift your mindset a little bit because it's not the way we are using it today. It was mostly thought of as a resuscitative measure. Um, and in turn, this is something that was initiated very, very quickly after birth. And so usually in the form of just plunging a baby into uh, cold water or making the baby cold like at birth. And so in the first case series that was published, they looked at 10 asphyxiated infants with the longest duration of asphyxia reported as 79 minutes, which really uh, makes your skin crawl a little bit if you've taken care wow. of any HIV babies. Yeah. <laughs> And in that series, they are describing that only one baby died within mm. 48 hours of life due to respiratory distress. And, and you have to remember, like, this is mm -hmm. 1960, where right. respiratory distress alone is, is almost a death sentence. Yeah. But the report is impressive in that the nine remaining infants who underwent cooling survived, and not only survived, but mm -hmm. were, according to the report, neurodevelopmentally intact. Um, 
they they didn't get a Bailey. Probably. No, they did not get a Bailey. <laughs> but that's something that I will get to. I will I will I will continue to. I will let me finish and then I'll tell you how they did that. <laughs> and with these results, additional case series with more infants were then subsequently published with similarly encouraging results. Mm-hmm. And the way they were, so let's talk a little bit about what they were doing. And so they were selecting babies that had very low Abgars, like a one minute Abgar score of less than five or babies who were like not breathing at birth. Uh, the mechanism by which they were inducing hypothermia was completely not controlled. <laughs> so mm. the babies were basically, they reported, they said, we called the babies between, and listen to this, between 20 and 34 degrees Celsius. Um and so, so they were taken out of a, they were taken into a cooling bath uh, until like they started breathing basically. So they had really no control over how low the, the how mm-hmm. low the, the temperature went and uh, the duration was, was very variable. Right. So, um, and sometimes they called the babies multiple times. So mm. they, they threw the baby back in the bucket if that, uh, if that's what it took. So, also no IRB, right? So no IRB. Um, <laughs> And then the rewarming process was obviously passive. So they report that it was very variable how long it took the babies to reach back a normal thermia. So some of these case series reported survival rates of around 80%. Other reported 90% survival after cooling, all with good developmental outcomes. And so when you read that, obviously, I think like, I'm like, how was that measured? <laughs> but they do talk about it. So they they mm-hmm. followed they, they basically followed these kids at, 20, at 24 months. Um, and they performed um, EEGs, EKGs, and they said they had a multidisciplinary evaluation. So yeah. this, this is not bad. This yeah. is not bad for the time. And so out of these studies in the 1960s, the recommendation specifically from Dr. Miller and the other investigators was that we should be adjusting our resuscitation protocols to include hypothermia in the cases of asphyxiated infants. But as you've grown accustomed to in this podcast nothing happened for the next 20 years Mm -hmm. and then as usual i'm always very interested as to why did nothing happen how come this evidence is out there and really nothing happened so unfortunately one of my heroes dr william silverman is Mm -hmm. partly responsible for that but not really because in 1958 he published a paper in pediatrics that was called the influence of thermal environment upon the survival of the newly born premature infant And in that paper, Silverman basically outlines something that he calls the normothermic hypothesis, in which he states that the survival of premature infants in the first five days of life is significantly influenced, positively that means, by the environments which uh, raise the body temperature of these subjects. And making the case that we should keep these babies normothermic, we should not let preterm babies get cold. This is followed by another paper in 1964, also published in pediatrics, called Effect of Maintenance of Normal Skin Temperature on the Survival of Infants of Low Birth Weight, which basically, I'm going to skip you, spare you the details. It just strengthened this idea of the normothermic hypothesis and pretty much sucked the life out of the hypothermia uh, work. Mm-hmm. Now, you may say, well, but Ben, this is like data on preterm babies, right? Mm-hmm. But Yeah. And that seemed to not matter. People looked at these papers and they said, if that's what preterm babies need, that's most likely what full-term babies should need as well. And it really uh, steered people away from cooling babies after birth 
even though they were not preterm, even though they were full terms, even though they were asphyxiated. Okay. And so that's that's pretty incredible how, um, like, I, I feel a bit ashamed of the field, you know, for not right. being able to differentiate saying maybe, maybe it's different for full-term babies. Okay. But um, it is what it is. And this is, this is what happened. So this, this basically halts the progress of any work on hypothermia and it would, it would, we would need to wait until maybe the late 80s, the 1990s to see a resurgence of papers identifying issues with asphyxia in term neonates. And most of these studies obviously were not looking so much at using hypothermia in babies, but we're starting to identify that full-term babies born um, after an asphyxiation or after a hypoxic injury uh, were having pretty bad outcomes. And so there's this mm. very nice paper published in the Journal of Pediatrics by Robertson and colleagues in 1987, which showed that more, which basically showed more than 80% death rates in infants born with severe HIE and showed that there was over 15% rates of disabilities, disability in babies with moderate or severe HIE. Mm. And there's a figure that we'll put on our presentation that is quite eloquent where um, they had basically 90 babies in the moderate group, 28 in the severe group. Um, and in the severe HIE group, 82% died, 18% were remaining were all disabled. And so people were starting to say, hey, like this is a population mm -hmm. that is not doing well. And interestingly enough, the famous Dr. Sita Shankaran, who we will meet again in the early 2000s when she publishes the paper with the Neonatal Research Network, published a similar paper in 1991 called Acute Neonatal Morbidity and Long-Term Central Nervous System Sequelae of Perinatal Asphyxia in Term Infants, where she examined the outcomes of 28 term neonates with asphyxia. And in that paper, she describes the damage, the multi-organ involvement of HIE, and the poor long-term prognosis, including death and neurodevelopmental impairment. Wow. And so, so now there's this wave of papers saying mm -hmm. there's a population that's being left out and we need to figure this out. And, and this is interesting to see how these papers, in coordination with a bunch of publications in animal studies, are really going to be the, the, at the nexus of this work where we will eventually get into um, cooling for actual babies. So. Mm -hmm. um, in 1987, there's a paper coming out of uh, my former institution, the University of Miami, which basically started tinkering in animals with different temperatures, right? So they, they looked at, um, I think they were looking in, in a rat model, they were looking at different temperatures, whether it was 33 degrees, 34 degrees, 36 degrees, or 39 degrees, and seeing which temperature was best in terms of brain injury and lowering um, the degree of brain injury. And they, and um and this, in coordination with another study later on, really identified that you don't need to cool babies really, really drastically. And that a range, which was identified by these two papers of like 32.5 to 33.5 degrees centigrade should be effective to achieve um, neuroprotection. So that's kind of neat to start when, when the, the beautiful thing about the work that we're doing is when you are actually tracing back the steps mm -hmm. of, the, of the, the work and then you start picking up on oh, this is where like that temperature that we're using starts becoming a bit described, right? Yeah, everything, right? The temperature, the length uh, was all described in the animal models. Yeah. And so then um, 
this new wave of research about 30 years after the initial papers is really, in my opinion, punctuated by the continued use of hypothermia in adult medicine. Mm -hmm. And the neonatal world starts looking at the adult world and saying, well, why did we stop doing that? So um, cooling was something that was used in the uh, 1980s, especially for for trauma in adult medicine. I mean, today there's all these papers on, on cardiac arrest and so on. But it reminded, in my opinion, the neonatal community of the potential benefits of the therapy. And this sort of epiphany is nicely described in 1997 by Thorson and Wyatt in a review paper called Keeping a Cool Head, Post-Hypoxic Hypothermia, an Old Idea Revisited. And it's it's such a good title when you're- I love puns in titles of, um, of art research amazing. articles. Yeah, it's amazing that they had like the- the irony of saying maybe maybe we we dropped the ball mm-hmm. there. This is published in Acta Pediatrica, and in that paper they review animal, adult, and neonatal evidence, taunting really the use of hypothermia and the urgent need to understand its mechanism of action. And they conclude, and I, I will quote the last paragraph because it's so well written. They say, in our view, mild hypothermia is currently the most promising option for a clinically feasible neural rescue therapy in encephalopathic newborn infants following acute perinatal asphyxia. However, there is probably insufficient evidence at present to commence clinical trials of hypothermia treatment in newborn infants. Several important questions remain unresolved. What degree and duration of hypothermia provide an optimal protective effect? How long may treatment be delayed following resuscitation for a protective effect to be detected? Does the protective effect of hypothermia differ in subjects exposed to mild versus severe hypoxia ischemia? What are the most appropriate early selection criteria that can be applied in a routine clinical setting? How can possible adverse consequences on other organ systems be ameliorated? Further studies are urgently required to address these issues before clinical trials can be designed. Half-hazard I'm sorry, half-hazard application of hypothermia as a clinical intervention is clearly undesirable and collaboration between research groups is essential to agree on protocols for future clinical trials. I mean, this is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Just, just... I, I mean, we're still tackling these problems today, I, I, right? Exactly, right? So when, <laughs> when they're laying out some of the mm-hmm. questions that we still have yet to answer. And so a year later, uh, Alistair Gunn from New Zealand published what would be one of the most influential animal studies in the context of neonatal HIE. And this paper is called Neuroprotection with Prolonged Head Cooling Started Before Post-Ischemic Seizures mm-hmm. in Fetal Sheep. The reason this was a very important paper, it was published in pediatrics, it's because it outlined pretty important principles of hypothermia for HIE. Um, in that study, they tried to figure out how long we had to initiate cooling mm-hmm. before the neuroprotective effects of hypothermia were lost. And so the research was based on the premise that clinicians may need, to, may need a few hours to recognize the presence mm-hmm. of encephalopathy and aimed to identify a therapeutic window for the initiation of cooling. And so this study of sheeps were cooled starting at six hours of life for a duration of 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Temperature was aimed to reach 30 to 33 degrees centigrade, and the outcomes showed that animals cooled had much better outcomes on brain pathology than control. And so then we are at the inception, I think, of the protocols we're using today, because that paper, by describing a cooling protocol that starts within the first six hours, that lasts 72 hours, that cools the babies to about 33 degrees centigrade, is pretty much where everything flows from. So that's that's really a massive paper. And then you, we'll put the the graph in our mm-hmm. in our presentation where the effects on brain pathology are pretty dramatic. In cool. two. 
in 2002, following that paper, the NICHD Neonatal Research Network published in pediatrics a paper called Whole Body Hypothermia for Neonatal Encephalopathy, Animal Observations as a Basis for a Randomized Controlled Pilot Study in Term Infants. And in this study, basically, they tried to work out the protocol that would become the backbone of their future paper on, on infants. So this is, um, and this was authored by, uh, by, the same, by the same group. And so... Oh boy, 20 minutes already. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But this leads us to 2005, which mm -hmm. uh, is not so long ago, where the right. um, trial by the NICHD Neonatal Research Network comes out in the New England Journal of Medicine. First author is Dr. Sita Shankaran. And the, body, and the title of the paper is Whole Body Hypothermia for Neonates with Hypoxic Ischemic Encephalopathy. And so let's go over this paper because it's obviously a landmark paper. And I just want to go a little bit about what they were trying to do, because I think many people sometimes uh, confuse what were the goals and also what were the results. Mm -hmm. So the aim of the trial was to evaluate whether whole body cooling initiated be before six hours of age continued for 72 hours in term infants with encephalopathy would reduce death or disability at 18 to 22 months of age compared to infants who were not cooled. The baby's eligibility criteria are basically the cooling criteria we use today. Babies had to be more than 36 weeks and the cooling was initiated based on moderate to severe encephalopathy defined as a pH of 7.0 or less or a base deficit of 16 millimoles on the first gas. If during the interval, the pH was outside this range was 7.01 and 7.15, and the base deficit was 10 to 15.9, then they had additional criteria, which included an acute perinatal event and uh, either a 10-minute APGAR score of five or less or assisted ventilation initiated at birth and continued for at least 10 minutes. These should sound very familiar mm -hmm. to everybody now. And once these criteria were met, all infants underwent standardized neurological examination, basically following the uh, SARNAT scoring, which is described in table one of the paper. And so they had 208 infants that were randomized, 102 in the hypothermia group, 106 in the control group. And what the results show were quite interesting. Um, they showed that when you looked at the primary outcome, which was death or moderate or severe disability, the uh, that that outcome occurred in 44% of the hypothermia group compared to 62% mm -hmm. of the control group. So really a striking difference that mm -hmm. was definitely statistically significant. What was, what was interesting, though, was that when they looked at the individual outcome, whether it was death, death was also lower in the hypothermia group, 24% versus 37%, but that was no longer statistically significant. Mm -hmm. When they looked at disability alone, whether it was the Bailey uh, mental developmental index, because they were using Bailey twos at the time, right? Um, there was no difference between the group. When they looked at the psychomotor developmental index, the PDI, there was also no difference between the groups. When they looked at cerebral palsy, there was no difference. When they looked at blindness, no difference. Severe hearing impairment, no difference. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how the death or moderate or severe disability outcome showed significance, but the other outcomes uh, really did not reach significance, even if um, they were always favoring the hypothermia group. And we will be talking about some of these other trials, like the Toby trial and the CoolCap trial later in the week. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of discussions to be had about what each trial looked at, what, when they looked at it. But the bottom line is that these trials that came out in the early 2000s really showed that there were better outcomes for babies who were cooled. And this is really what started the wave of using hypothermia for HIE 
as a standard of care. So a pretty fascinating history, if you ask mm-hmm. me. It was a lot of fun it to actually cool. yeah, walk through that. Um, and yeah, that's it for the history. All right. Thanks, buddy. See you guys tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.